Hey, I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank Susan, Chichilia, and Richard, as well as Caitlin, for being patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at proweaverpod.com, and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. This week, we talk with Constance Collins of Constance Art Couture from Indianapolis, Indiana. Constance expresses her artistic voice through pattern and color, using primarily alpaca, bamboo, silk, and a dash of metallic for sparkle. She modifies traditional weave structures to create unique patterns. Her complex weaves create a sense of rhythm and play as they interact with her bold warp and weft colors. Her strong sense of color comes through particularly in her art pieces. Similar to pointillism, she creates works that reveal deeper texture and strategy the closer you inspect. If you haven't listened to part one, go back to last week's episode to catch up. We hope that you enjoy part two, where we talk about Constance's pricing tech pack, the technical side of producing art, and some craft show tips. We began the second part of the podcast talking about pricing. Well, what I like about what I do, and I don't, I don't know that anybody I've presented it to. I actually uh, did it at Convergence uh, 2018 in Reno, and I don't know that anybody had adopted it or anything. Um, I like it because it's more detail. I know that people are, I think years ago it was two times materials, and now it's maybe three times materials or something like that. But what this does is it it everything is spelled out so like there's the um, uh the bill of materials area which is all my like my yarn costs you know go up there if i had uh findings like my trims that i put on my table runners you know anything that goes into making the piece goes up there um i have um miscellaneous expenses and and there i have things like uh, i have a small amount for rent uh, utilities. Um, I also have uh, a category for seconds and miscellaneous. So sometimes uh, I'll use my bamboo as an example. Sometimes my bamboo, there's several plies. They're all really, really thin plies, but maybe there's six to eight yarns that are all, you know, plied together. And with bamboo, they're not really twisted so much like in alpaca or wool is. And if one or two of those breaks, I end up losing a, a chunk, but you know when you're when you're buying, you know, uh, the let's see, it's 2,100 yards a pound, I think, on the seven. You know, you you can't go back and say I lost, you know, five yards or I lost ten yards. You know, it's just, but how do you cover that you've lost ten yards? So my seconds category 
covers that. Um, I I make mag we make magnetic buttons. Well, not every button you get can you use. So seconds in there. So you, you're taking a really small amount of money. It's not very much, but you take it on every single piece that you sell so that when you come to the point where maybe you have a, a chunk that's a bit of a loss, it's not coming out of your personal money because in your profits, you've been collecting a little bit towards those times when something happens that is unforeseen to you. Um, Miscellaneous are, are, are things that happen that are just out of your control. So you, your price for your your hang tags, you know, they go up on you from one time because maybe you don't. You only order them maybe every year or every couple of years, and the price has gone up. But you have uh, in my design and cost sheet, which is where I put all my materials. I put things like uh, I don't use hang tags, but if you had a hang tag, you'd, I mean, um a label because everything I do is reversible. So I don't put labels in them. But when I used to not do reversible, I always had labels. So you put your labels, your hang tags. If you have a, uh, any kind of a care tag, anything like that, those go in your, um, in that what's carried over into the material cost. But if something goes up and you've been calculating your price here and it goes up, how do you eat that price? Well, if you've collected a tiny bit and it's really, it's just, you know, pennies usually on everything you sell, then when your price goes up, ultimately you'll change your price to the new price, but you're going to be selling some things where you're still at the old price. And so that helps you cover that kind of a loss. So for me, it's just, it's just, and then you have your labor. So it would be my labor. It'd be if I was paying someone else their labor and you put that in the labor area. And then I do it based on a gross margin. Like I want a certain percentage of a gross margin or my profit, what's ever left over after I've covered all these expenses, I've paid myself. And that's what goes into the business so that when I saw this loom that I wanted to pick up, I had money in my business that I could then say, okay, or if something breaks, you know, God forbid my original Dobby is my original Dobby. But when that breaks, I'm gonna need a few thousand dollars for a new Dobby. Where's that money going to come? It comes by the fact that I, I operate with a certain amount of gross margin. Um, and it's not anywhere near what, what big companies um, do for gross margins. But I also don't have the overhead that they have. So it, it, it works for me. Whereas, you know, maybe it all works if I just took my material costs and did three times. But I'm more comfortable having it all spelled out for me. So I just took... Um, the tech pack in this um, pro program that they use in the industry, I just took the design and cost section of it, and it's three pages, and that's what I use for my um, for all of my pricing to make sure that I end up with profit that go, go into the company so you can grow your business. It's not enough to just cover your cost and to pay yourself. You need to have some money in that business for times like this where you got some money there that you can take a little bit of a salary when no money's coming in perhaps or more importantly i like to look at it money that i can make upgrades in uh, equipment or just replace something that's broken yeah i know that because we're just starting out we're we're kind of on like the tight margins like we're still figuring out like where 
where we're allocating money to and how we're going to pay ourselves. And we're still figuring out our own kind of pricing guidelines. So it's really nice to hear that you've kind of developed this system to help facilitate growth in a business, or at least so you can see growth in a business. Right. And then the other thing I did was I put in formulas throughout it so that, okay, uh, because before that you're sitting there every single time you're going through the math, you know, and then what if you make a mistake in the math? Now your whole pricing is off for this particular item or this, say, scarves or something. But when you have the spreadsheet and you've put in your formulas and you know all your formulas are right, then you just plug your numbers in each time. And as long as you haven't messed up the formula somewhere. So I tell people, keep a template, like just you know, whatever you get from me, save it as the template and mm-hmm. then do a save as and rename it for whatever, what you're trying to price. Because then if you make a mistake over here and you wipe out a formula, you can go back to your template and copy the formula and bring it back over here. You've not lost what your formula is. So it just yeah. saves you, it saves you time in terms of pricing as well, because everything's there and you can pick and choose, choose like in the general administrative section, you Mm -hmm. can decide, well, I I don't want to put this price in there. You know, one of the questions that came up when I taught it at Convergence was there was something in there that somebody thought should be in there. And because I took it from the fashion industry, it was a cost. Sorry, I don't remember what it was, but it was a cost that they as a big corporation would have put up here somewhere. They wouldn't have had it down. So I truly try to keep it to what is just for this particular item. What's right. the cost for this particular item? Um, and other than putting in a little bit for you know my rent uh, and utilities, I'd have to. I haven't looked at it. I have to look at it to see if there's anything else in there. Uh, I figure the other cost they're just sort of absorbed because I have my studio at home and yeah, I'm small. Because yeah. the bottom line is, I I don't make very much um, money for my time even at the prices I charge just because my stuff takes a really long time and I'm not really putting in money for my design time. And I spend a lot of time. I'm very proud of my, what I do with designs and I'm not really charging for that. So I would hope that someday I would get to the point where uh, people are paying more for my design time than they are just for me to execute on my design. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely I feel that totally because I put a lot I put a lot into my designs as well. That's mainly where the bulk of the work is cuz the rest of it like the marathon labor part is the quick and easy for me. But to put the time into the design, you're putting in all that creative energy and that's like from pulling from the ether. Like mm-hmm. that takes so much energy and someday someday we'll both get paid for that. Right. I hope. So one that you've mentioned a few times in podcasts that so you're not really good with keeping track of things or records or yeah. whatever. Something that has really helped me uh, when I first got into this and, and doing like more of the production work, although I'm not really good at the production part of it. I realize I, I have notebooks and usually I fill up a notebook in a year. This year, I probably won't fill up my notebook. I do better with deadlines. And so <laughs> I don't have deadlines. Mm-hmm. I have to admit I'm not producing quite as much as I should. But I found that when I would go back to uh, recolor a design, like I have one I call stained glass, and it's a really popular, and I love it. I love the, the weaves that come out of my stained glass warp, but I have to recolor it all the time to keep it interesting to me. 
And I'd go back and I'd have my handwritten notes on my page. It's like maddening to me. So I started using Excel. I'm a big fan of Excel. So I make Excel spreadsheets that have all of my, um, so, you know, at 36 inch per inch, I have 72 because I do, I, do, I do it in the two-inch sections of the AVL. Right. So I do two-inch section and however many two-inch sections across. Uh, if they if they change color for every place that it's the same, I'll make it one color at the top, just the, not the whole column, just the bar at the top. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really nice way. And then I that yarn winding I, I mentioned to you, I'll put the yarn winding with my spreadsheet. So if I know I want to redo something, I can go to the one that I just did. I see my yarn winding. I've got it all laid out there. I can open it up in the computer and then I can just start changing colors where I want want to substitute this color for that color, this color for that color, way less time than trying to handwrite it out and keep everything straight. So that might be, that's a tip that has really helped me a lot. So you might consider, you might consider that. I had always wondered how weavers had used Excel for designing because I've always used Fiberworks for design and that always is a little finicky, but uh-huh. that's that would be a good trick, especially with like the designs that I have, like, cause I mainly use like one color warp and like a couple colors for the weft or like a multicolored warp with one color for the weft. And that would be a great way to change it up quickly and easily and have records of it. So that's a good trick. Thank you. It's it worked for me. Once I got into it and, and started making more pieces, I realized trying to re- recreate something in a recolored format could be a lot easier than the way I was doing it. So even now with everything, I just it, it just really works for me. So even if I'm doing less production type work, yeah, the Excel spreadsheet will never go away for me. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, I used Excel when I was teaching that CAD program because uh, back in the day when I started out, you had graph paper and you were filling in the little boxes. But I taught my students how to make a Excel spreadsheet look like graph paper. And then you just, so that we actually designed drafts um, uh, just to teach them how it was. I mean, the computer, they were getting most of their drafts off of this CAD program, but I wanted to under, them to understand how a draft, how you actually made it. We just did simple things like plain basket, twill, and satin, but it still seemed to help them understand a little bit. Yeah. That was always, I took one CAD class when I was in college and that it was with the fashion program and I took it with another fiber student. And it was really interesting to see how the students in the fashion program used the Weave CAD program versus the fiber students to see like the logistics, like how how could this actually be made? And the fiber students actually understood, oh, this is actually like if I could use this program, I could actually translate this to the loom where the fashion students hadn't actually sat down at a loom and so they were creating like all these jacquard images and really out like crazy floats and all sorts of stuff that wouldn't actually work as a woven piece. So it was really interesting to be in that class. So I don't want to digress too much, but yeah, just to play off of that. So the first CAD program I taught, this was back in 1999, and it was like a beginning CAD program. And again, it was for the fashion industry, so it wasn't necessarily for we w- we wouldn't use it for our work. But um, it 
students sat down and they were like immediately thinking they were going to be great textile designers because look how good this looks on the computer screen. And I would try and talk to them about the, you know, whether it was going to really work as a fabric and the floats. So one day I had this black warp on my, on my loom that I just wanted to get off the loom. So I, I threw out to them, I said, if you give me your drafts, because this was the end of the week, I will put them into my loom and I weave up small samples of your fabric and um, everybody listened to me except these two older students who had decided they they couldn't learn anything from me but then when all these younger students are bringing me their drafts one of the older women came up and asked but didn't go back to tell her friend what I was doing and I said I was very clear once the warps cut off I can't do this for anybody it's, this is a one-time offer it was one of the best learning things I think I ever did for my students. Out of everybody, there was only one student who had a fabric that was viable. But for them to then sit and look at their beautiful thing on the computer and look at what the fabric looked like that wove from their draft, it was like that light bulb moment. Yeah. And it was funny. Now, the two older women after that, they did start listening to me. They realized that I could teach them something. The first older woman, her fabric didn't, um, didn't work. And then the second one came up, wanting to know, can I do it? Can I do it? And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Warp's cut off the loom now. I, I can't help you. Right. But, so that was a really beneficial thing. It just didn't usually work out that I had a spare warp on my loom to, to show them that. But Yeah, absolutely. We went on to discuss how Constance finishes her fine art pieces. Um, so I use a fusible interfacing. Um, like I cut my fabrics when I get all these little shapes, I cut them and they're not interfaced. I like the little bit of rough edge that you get. You get some, you know, whereas if it's if it's interfaced, it's just going to be totally smooth. Mm -hmm. um, but I have, I have the interfacing laid out, uh, the sticky side up, and I lay my piece out until I get it just the way I want it. And then I use the iron and it... Uh, it hears it. Now, you know, I still stitch it. It would never last if I didn't stitch. And I use um, a, like a satin stitch, uh, what you would use for bar tacking on your on your jean pockets and stuff. So it's really fine going around the pieces. Uh, and some pieces aren't attached at all with interfacing because they're going on top of the pieces that were down on the interfacing. But the whole piece is kind of secured with that interfacing. And that makes it so that when I do attach it, to the canvas, it's it's gonna um, attach better than if it were just the fabric, you know. Right. If it's, um, and then I also put um, cotton quilt batting, and I just put that on the front. I don't wrap it around the canvas because then it would be so thick that the corners would be hard to like lay down because mm -hmm. you're already folding woven fabric over woven fabric, and if you had the uh, batting in there, it, it, the staple gun might not get through it. So right. I just have the, the batting in the front because it's not going to go anywhere. Your your stuff is pulled taut around and, and stapled. Um, and I use gallery, uh, what's it called? Gallery something canvas. So they're okay. finished nicer. They're not just the where the canvas is just white and, you know, cover. You still see the wood of the canvas because the gallery wrap... Um, I don't have one right here I'd show you but anyway I use those so they look nicer when they're finished um, if I had something that wasn't um, like in the very beginning a couple of them weren't quite so nicely finished I'll probably put craft paper on the back of it and put the hanger off of the craft paper uh, but now I fix them with the galleries so that 
they're fine without the craft paper. And then I just sign the back of the canvas. Oh, cool. cool. Nice. That's awesome. That's a great way to do it. Yeah. Especially like because with working with woven fabrics and an art medium like that, it's so easy to have them slip and slide. And with the interfacing, you have such a finer control over them. But also, it gives it a nice, uh, a nice padding. Um, yeah. And then if you don't have the thing and you try to wrap it around and you get to a corner, what's going to happen is the canvas can actually poke through right. the weaving. If you think about it, because you know, depending on how tightly you've interlaced it that the point of those canvases can come through your um can come through so yeah um, cool that helps when uh we were in college we did or tegan did a bunch of shibori stuff work examples things like that for classes and uh ultimately we had like this giant pile and we had to figure out like what to do with it and we don't we didn't really want to just toss it in a bin. So what we did was um I took I have a matting setup. So I took and I cut mats and then I took linen tape and I sewed the linen all the way across the top of uh what would be basically hanging. Like if you were to mat uh a photograph or something you'd hinge it on the top and then lay it down and then put your mat board over top of it so what i did was i hinged it with uh with like um uh book binding tape mm -hmm. and then i hooked that to the back uh of the mat board and then i took another piece of mat board and which was roughly the thickness of the weaving and i cut the weaving out like the size of the weaving and put that down, and then I had to cut one perfectly the right size uh, over top of it. And I put a third layer down, so now that weaving is just sitting in that little um, compartment that's sort of sandwiched inside two boards. And uh, still, I mean, we what, we made that in 2008 or nine, And it's still hanging up. They're still hanging and looking good. So I just figured... Um, support it evenly from the top if you're going to mat it uh as opposed to like doing the stretching thing right because we had smaller pieces too i mean we weren't making like bigger pieces that uh would need that like kind of space to breathe yeah we just had like small samples they were like maybe six by six or ten yeah they were like six by six but also yeah. constance's work is much more sculptural she right. has a lot more sculptural elements that need support and to showcase that i think the way that she has it set up really supports it and to have the the batting and the interfacing really <clears throat> elevates it and gives it a more oomph than if it was just flat with yeah, matte border on canvas yeah the texture and the, or like what the raising that it does as we're talking about your work yeah. <laughs> well the te the um the textural pieces uh, even in my triptychs, it's the third piece that people are really uh, responding to is that third piece. Yeah. So um, I've got, I think I have two or three in that series now. I'm calling that kaleidoscope because it's kind of like if you look through a kaleidoscope, you know, yeah. that might be what it looks like. I've done some on um, little uh, eight by eight, they call them uh, canvas boards. And they're mm -hmm. really thin, mm -hmm. and they're used a lot, like, I think, for 
art classes where, you know, you don't want to spend a lot of money on a canvas. But you get these really thin ones. So I did my first triptych out of that. And I actually have it framed now. That's the one that's at the Art for the Heartland. The pictures of it that I, I have that they keep posting and that I've posted, shared on my site were the ones taken before we got the frame. It was the pandemic. And I didn't even know if I was going to get the frame before I had to turn hang the piece up. Right. Uh, but it is framed now. So I wanted thin things so they could go in kind of a deeper frame and be a little bit recessed in mm-hmm. this deeper frame. But the big one that's hanging in our dining room right now, that one's so big, I would never frame it. And, I yeah. don't, and I'm not, I'm not going to make them quite that big again. Those panels were 18 by 14, I think. I think we've settled on 16 by 12. I think yeah. that'll be a nice size. And you got to look at it too, with so many people now having open concept homes, there's less wall space to hang things. So right. I think having something that's a little bit smaller might uh, be more appealing to people. Mm. Yeah, I don't for really sure. know if I can get out and show and get feedback from people, but <laughs> that's what I'm thinking in my head. Yeah. 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 I mean, as you can see, I'm jamming as much as I can onto the walls in the house, you know? <laughs> yep. Well, it seems like you could sell those little Shibori pieces. Yeah. I think that's kind of a direction that we're going to start to head in is figuring out some smaller artistic ways to get woven textiles into people's homes that may not necessarily be utilitarian items more more of those decorative items so to speak well and the other thing too like for me at least like my bigger pieces they're i'm pricing them high just i think that they're worth it and you know but i do have some smaller pieces like those eight by eights that are just a couple of hundred dollars and there i think you know i've had lots of times i've had young people in my booth but i'm just not uh, a price point that they can afford so and i can't i haven't figured out anything wearables that I could do in a price point that that younger right. people might be able to afford. But if I had maybe these small wall pieces or something, they could get something from me now. And then as they grow in their careers and get older or just save up or whatever, then they can come back and they can buy something else from me. Yeah. So um, I am hoping to find something that I can offer at a little bit more reasonable price point for, you know, just to be a little bit more inclusive and in yeah. who can buy my work. Yeah, and I think we too sometimes run into like people love the work, but they, you know, right after they're done telling us how awesome it is, they're like, but I could never put this in my house because I just destroy it. And I think the like something that we found as an answer to that is like, okay, well then maybe we could do like a, a wider run of some fabric design and then we could do different colorways and then we could cut it down smaller so basically what we're doing is we're just taking like a big project that we do anyway and instead of making like 30 hand towels out of it we can make like 60 little wall hangings and the prices of those can come down for sale well in fact the um i, I don't know if you see i guess on my website i don't know if you saw it or not. it's the mother earth three So it's the one uh, that's kind of in orange and black colors. So that originally was a wrap. Uh, So it was like 90 inches. I wove 90 inches long. And the side that was up was the side of the very first panel. 
And when I got it off, the side, it's the second piece, the floats were just like, oh my gosh. And I just couldn't see it. And if I don't know why, usually I sample and, you know, I'll cut it off and I'll know that. But for some reason I didn't on this one. And I had 90, 90 inches woven of this. So it was just folded up and I couldn't do anything with it. So when I got to the time to do these wall pieces, I started going through my bins of things that I've woven. And I loved this fabric and it was perfect for this. So that's cool. <laughs> you might find something that you've tucked away that wasn't um, usable for um throws or whatever. And um, yeah, I don't really have an answer for the people that say, well, I have a cat. I was like, yeah, a cat would definitely destroy that. I can't really help you there. <laughs> yeah. There's there's not a whole lot to do when you have animals. I mean, yeah, dogs. Or- yeah, we do the best that we can. We design our, like, I design the blankets the best I can and we test run it. We have a dog and two cats and we test run it with them. And it's like, well, it's held up a year with our animals and they're pretty obnoxious. But I don't know how destructive yours are, so we'll see how it goes. And I also offer mending services, so if a dog chews through a blanket, I know how to mend it and patch it. So it's it's just an extra. A lot of times, the people that buy wearables, um, they understand. Like I was when I was in Philadelphia, this woman came up, and I had this one scarf left, one of my favorite ones, and she brings up to me, she goes. I really want this scarf, but it's got a huge pull in it, you know, because people are trying things on all the time. And it, it was big. And unfortunately, it was in the warp. I'm, it's much easier to fix them in the in the fill, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But I said, um, I said, well, I, I can fix that if you're interested. If you want to give me like 10 or 12 minutes, I can get it done. As I'm working on it, when I realized it was the warp, I'm like, oh, I should have said 15 minutes, whatever. But before she came back, I had it totally fixed. And she goes, oh, so you just have to work it back in? Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, so yep. I sometimes stress about, oh, you know, my fabric, it, you know, it's it's going to snag. But people that are used to wearables seem like or wovens seem to be fine with that because they know they just have to you just have to pull on it. And it, it yeah, it works back. itself out mm-hmm. uh-huh. for yeah, sure. So. Okay. I, do like more. I think okay, I'm ready gotta... to ask my last question. OK, <laughs> so, Eric. We'll ask his question. Okay. So my question is, what is uh, a big mistake that you've made in terms of like weaving or maybe designing patterns or finishing or anything that you feel like was like an oh my God at the time and then you learned something from it and were able to grow as a weaver or business person or whatever? One thing was, you know, like I... When I create these drafts, you know, I, I told you I take a traditional draft and then I make these modifications. I have to spend a lot of time going through and, and fixing floats. And, and so that piece I just mentioned to you, that was, you know, that was a whole wrap that I couldn't sell because I had missed that these floats were on the other side of it. Um, in terms of, and I don't know if this will answer your question, but I did think of when I first got my AVL loom, so I didn't really know anything about it. And I'm looking at what kind of accessory pieces I might need. And uh, I bought a spool rack. And the spool racks are big. They hold a lot. They were, it was really expensive even back when I bought it. And uh, we had a, I had a commission piece. And I don't remember. It was probably done with either 3-2 or 5-2 cotton. So my set was not so big. But I bought a yarn of cone or cone of yarn for every single end. 
So, oh. and it was all a neutral color. So you think you could use a neutral color, but after a while, I, I work in color. So this commission was for more neutral stuff. I had all of this um, cotton yarn, cones and cones and cones of it uh, in all these neutral colors. It was a huge expense that it, that cost me a lot. And years later, I finally um, threw it out I think after we moved back here seven years ago, just because I felt like at that time that I couldn't even really give it to somebody because just like you had the problem with your vintage yarns, I felt like this yarn is so old. If I give it to somebody and then it just, they can't even work with it because it just keeps breaking. I ended up throwing it away. And that was a huge mistake. I still have the cone rack. It's up in our attic. Uh, we wind spools now. Uh, Dennis winds the spool. I, mean, I used to do it all, but now he's helping me with stuff and he winds the spools. And that's the other thing I put on my spreadsheet. I figure out because I do a lot of color in my warp, you mm -hmm. know, how many spools of this color and how many yards go in that spool, you know, because I'm putting on yardage to go all the way across the warp. But totally, it's the way to go if you're using a lot of color. Like if you're using all, you know, you use all the same color, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But for me, that was a costly, costly yeah. error that took a while to recover from. <laughs> yeah, mm, for sure. I know I, I have a rug loom downstairs that I want so badly to put a continuous warp on so that I can just keep going and keep going and cut them off as I get through them. But the price of starting it, I know once I get it and get it set up, I'll be good for years. But getting going on it is like so ungodly expensive. Do you have any uh, concerns that, um, like I know you, you guys talk about putting on these really long warps. I find that um, I like my warps best earlier on in the warp. When I get down towards the end of the warp, and maybe it's just getting to the end of the warp. Maybe, you know, I would be fine if I put on a 50, because I don't really remember when I used to put on 60-yard warps. I don't really remember. Um, having problems so maybe it's just something when you get to towards the end of the warp that i find i have more uh issues than than i do at the beginning of the warp i get really excited at the beginning and then in the middle is just a trudge and then at the end as soon as i see those knots coming over the end it's just so exciting it's like i did it the finish line is here i feel the adrenaline so but are I, you having any issues with your tension? Uh, I have. I, actually, I don't know if I, the only, I get tension on my, I get tension issues on my 48 inch AVL. If I do warps that are over 30 yards long, I find that once it gets past a certain point on the take up, it just seems to have trouble with the tension mm -hmm. or it will start to slip or something weird will start to happen on the 60 inch i haven't had any tension issues that weren't user error <laughs> might yeah. be user error. i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah because <clears throat> this last project she had on there there was like 30 ish yards yeah there's a tension issue but that started like with tying on the front and then not realizing it until it had like kind of compounded itself about a quarter of the way through the warp. And then it was just about fixing it and getting it back in line and leaving like a little spot to patch when we were done. And then just kept rolling. I think 
where we found the most tension issues with the AVLs, the sectional warping of the AVLs has been, was in the early stages of really figuring out how to do it where Tegan and I were like standing there sort of figuring out how do we adjust it to get it like perfectly flat in each section and then Mm -hmm. putting 50 yards on or something like that. Um, It came when it was mounding on one side or the other. So then when you got the farther you got down, the more off your tension was from like one side of the section to the other. And then Mm -hmm. you'd get like little parts that weren't weaving just quite right or a little weird. And then, uh, then we like figured out how to weight them like correctly where on the loom to weight them, those kinds of things. But once we got much better and smoother at putting each section on perfectly flat and getting it aligned right and sort of knowing how that process works, um, I think we've like pretty much gotten rid of tension issues. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't. Mine might might not have even been ten, tension issues. I just find that um, I use an automatic cloth advance. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it when I get further in, I find that sometimes I have to make more adjustments with it, and having it just, you know, work for the whole time. Like it'll be do, doing great, and it's just perfect. And then I reach a point where, oh, I've got to change it, or maybe it has to do with I'm doing a different weave, and this particular weave I have to change it. I do um, have to, I do have to, I also have an auto cloth advance and I have to adjust mine as I get further along because I uh-huh. think it just needs a little bit extra oomph when there's more yardage on it. It needs a little bit more strength to keep pulling that I fabric forward. Through, yeah. 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 So now my favorite question is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? And it could be life, it could be weaving, just something that kind of carries you through, carries you through. Um, well, I think, and I said in my, and when I answered my question, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got was from my older brother who told me, you need to get going. You know, I, I lived mm-hmm. my whole life, you know, I'll get around to it. I've always got tomorrow and realizing that, yeah, I need to, <laughs> I need to get going. So that was a pretty good bit of advice. Um, other bit of advice. Well, um, I, I've gotten this from my son, you know, I've, I started um, meditating and uh, it's funny. I never, I never could meditate. You know, my mind always wandered and everything. I just could never do it. But when I had to start doing physical therapy every morning, I thought, well, I'm here. Maybe I should give it a try. And and after listening to some people who, you know, talk about meditation, it they point out that everybody's mind wanders. You know, you're, there's nothing wrong with you. If your mind wanders, you want to, as soon as you notice it wandering, you want to bring it back to where you are. And then you get to the point where you're pretty good at meditating unless it's a week before a show or the week of a show, then I don't do such a good job of meditating. But um, for me, just um, so I do prayers and meditation of the more in the morning. And that has really, um, you know, I, I turn my day over to a higher power and, and um, things just, my life is just better. You know, I watched yeah. my son go from, you know, being somebody who had no patience and a hot temper to being this really mellow, humble um, young man that is just, you know, I love being around him. He's just, 
I don't know. So I think that really helped me, you know, having him kind of push me to finding out myself, getting myself a little bit more centered um, and focusing on today. I was, uh, it's pretty bad when your family, particularly your kids go, oh, there's mom, coulda, shoulda, woulda, mm-hmm. you know, because I did. I spent a lot of my life looking backwards, you know, what I could have done, should have done, would have done, or worrying about the next day. And now I really do. I just focus on today and what I can get done today. And it's made a huge difference for me in my life. It's made a huge difference for me in my work. And um, so. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Tegan, for a long time, was using. A meditation app. Yeah. What was it? Waking up? Yes. Yeah. I was using the waking up app and I was using it every morning because I also wasn't meditating and my mind wanders and I'm always thinking and I'm a workaholic. Like if I'm not working, what am I doing? And um, it's kind of recently that I've realized that I need to kind of find another purpose besides just being a workhorse. Mm -hmm. And that has come from meditation and kind of listening to myself. And I totally agree, like being able to find your center and being able to pay attention to now is really important. And it helps, it makes your, it makes the work that you do create that much stronger because you're able to pay attention to it more. You're able to give it the time that it needs. Instead of well, just another thing too, if you can clear that clutter out of your mind, I often find the answer to whatever problem I'm having, it comes to me during those morning prayers and meditation. You know, if I've been struggling with something on the loom or, you know, trying to figure out a design or a next project or whatever, it, it's just clear. All of a sudden it's like, oh. You know, I can see things. And the other thing, it carries out through the day. So if something happens during the day that normally would have just maybe ruined the rest of my day, or I just can't, you know, I go down a rabbit hole and I can't figure out the answer, I can, I just now stay calm. And before I know it, I know what to do. You know, I I have the answer to it. So if you can try to really uh, allow yourself to, and it's hard in the beginning. And like I said, I always struggle if it's before a show. I, I don't do such a good job then, even though I know it makes such a difference. I have a hard time doing it. But um, the more you do it, um, the better you'll get. At least that was my case. Um, and then when it's not a good day, don't beat yourself up because it's like, well, you know, for some reason I couldn't do it today. But that doesn't mean that I can't do it sometime later in the day. You know, I can take five minutes at my loom if I need to to kind of try to center myself and, you know, get my brain to calm down and relax and and we finished our second podcast up by talking about shows yeah Yeah. and that's the thing like i i never wanted to do wholesale but uh finally people pointed out to me mainly my husband that all the money that i put in to go to these shows i'm probably only making when it's all done I'm probably only making what I would make at host, selling at wholesale anyway. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. right? you know, you're, you're saving the wear and tear on your your car for the mileage, you know, the yeah. your bodies and everything. I don't want to never, I don't want to totally cut out shows. I love meeting people. I like Me hearing too. the feedback. But um, 
I think trying to find other avenues for selling is, you know, is a great idea. Do you yeah. guys do a uh, artful home? No, no. I've um, never heard. I don't of them. either. But lots of people really um, like when years ago it was called the Guild, and it was um, it cost a lot. It cost you like three or four thousand dollars to do it, two or three maybe, and they marketed themselves to interior people. But now it's called Artful Home. I think it's maybe 400 something to be um, juried in and, and photographed and everything. And then you um, you put in things and you have to make sure you have them in, in stock. So if somebody buys it, you have to ship it quickly. But um, they pay for the shipping costs. If I understand it right, they pay the shipping you get half of whatever your price is set. So if it's hundred dollars, you'll get fifty dollars. But they cover the shipping for you, and um, and I know lots of artists that are that are on it and, and seem to think that it's a it's a nice way. You know, maybe each month or every other month they get you know some money coming in from things that have sold, and That's you might cool. look into them. I'm yeah. still on the fence whether I I want to do it or not. I was thinking I might do them for my. Um, for my wraps possibly because they've got like tons and tons of scarves they don't need any more they don't yeah. need any more scarves but um you know maybe my wraps or my table runners or something yeah but i just have to you know decide what i want to do and actually do it <laughs> yeah that's that can sometimes be the worst part of the whole thing figuring out what it is that's next or do i partake in this particular offering or do i skip it or yeah, it's, it can be tough. Was Baltimore good for you guys? Baltimore yeah. was great. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've never applied because I always thought it was too big, but I, I, I was just eating my heart out this year that I didn't apply. You know, there were so many people there that would have been nice to have met. And it's like, well, if everybody's doing this show, it must be worth doing it, even though there's 700. I usually try to do 200 or less, or, you know, maybe I'll do yeah. 225. But I try to do the smaller shows my feeling was always the big shows even if somebody likes you they they're lost they can't come back to you but by the time they've gotten to the end of the show they're too tired to come back but maybe that's just me going to a show when i get i lose interest after i've seen that many people but uh, i my plan was to apply this coming year but (laughs) we'll see yeah i think the the thing about the the baltimore show at least is that the people who come to that show by and large, are very focused on finding awesome stuff. And they um, they have their booklet with all of the people in it, and they have their map, and they walk the show once and mark down the places that they really like and want to go back to. Mm-hmm. The first year we were there, we didn't make a sale really until um, Sunday. I mean, we didn't make... We, we had a couple sales Friday, you know, maybe a hundred, two hundred bucks worth of stuff Friday, maybe like three or four hundred dollars worth of stuff on Saturday. But lots of talking, lots of um, talking about the work and us and how we do this and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then Sunday, I mean, we got slammed all day Sunday. People were coming in and buying. I mean, now I can't say that, that it's that way for everyone, but that was the first year and the second year. So that was this year. We had more of a um, more of a slow trickle through the whole thing, which was interesting. It was a very different kind of selling experience. This year we did like 
a thousand on Friday, a couple thousand on Saturday, and then we hit, we had our our biggest day certainly on Sunday. Um, again, which is kind of amazing because a lot of times Sunday is the slower day for yeah. for shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah Sun- it's interesting. Sunday, Sunday's been your best uh, show or best yeah. day. Yeah, I think some of it is people like people will come and walk it on like Friday or Saturday, so you're doing a lot more chatting with people uh on friday and saturday and then people come sunday to buy people will come i mean if they're coming into town they're going to stay over anyway so they might as well stay and come back and not feel rushed because it is i mean massive show the not this year but last year when we went the first time we set up and then we um walked it quickly like after we had set everything up and walking it quickly took us like almost two hours. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It's enormous. It's like the whole downstairs of the Baltimore convention center. Yeah. See, I just never, I've never done one that big, but I feel like I'm being a little bit silly if I, if I don't. And yeah. now's, I guess the time to start building up inventory. Cause boy, you'd need a lot of inventory for a show like that. Yeah. Yes. A lot yeah. more than I ever take with me to shows. <laughs> yeah, we try to bring uh we get big like the not the normal size bins, but the size bigger than that. But the size before they have wheels on them. So it's kind of like the medium big size. And we take seven of those. We take seven we take seven large bins. Yeah, seven large bins well, of product. And um probably come back pretty reliably with like five or four of product. So it's a lot. I mean, a lot goes out at that show for us. Yeah. Um, I can hope that if, when, if, and when we have it again, if I get in, that it'll be a good show for me too. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some awesome, um, there are people there that do the kind of stuff you do, like the stretched and mounted uh, fabric and then also wearables and stuff like that. And I mean, it's a high caliber of uh, product that's there, which I think you would fit like perfectly into. And the customers are educated. So you don't have to do like a bunch of, no, I actually make this fabric kind of talking. You can actually get to the, the uh, real questions about material and process and right. like super interesting things um, as opposed to just like the baseline. Well, it goes on a loom and you know, it's, this is how I do it and <laughs> that kind of stuff. So and right. I, people go there to buy. So if you're there, people will buy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But nice. I had Baltimore in my, in my uh, bank account this year. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. know. It's been a crazy, uh, a crazy year for trying to refigure out how to sell. Yeah. But what are you going to do? Scary. You know? It's a little scary if, if you're looking down the line too, because it's like, I don't know when the, uh, I don't, I don't see the turning point just yet. Right. The end's not in sight. Yet, yeah. I don't think. And you know, not I'm sure. the thing I've been thinking about is like all these shows that are so expensive. How are we going to be able to? like get started with them again because we've not had like Baltimore is like I once we do the hotel and everything driving there and back I think we're somewhere around two thousand dollars for the show 
um, where exactly is that money going to come from that we can go back to Baltimore next year? Is because we don't we haven't had any shows. Baltimore was our only show. Um, we haven't had. I mean, we've been doing online sales, which has been great, but it's not enough to pay for shows. And we've got not only Baltimore, but, you know, another six shows or so, um, only two of which are under like $500. So where, like, how do I get as a, you know, small business owner that depends on going to shows to find a market and to find new people and connect with our community? Well, where do, where does that money come from to get going again? And I think that's what I'm really kind of nervous about for not only you, like you and us as creators, but also the show companies. I mean, are they going to have to like fold or close shows because no artist can support like the rent that they have to pay for these massive venues? It's kind of, it's scary to think about. You mentioned the other day, uh, Boston. Mm-hmm. Is that a good show? Because I've read mixed reviews on that one. We came out after everything, all told. We came out somewhere like $85 we made on like five days of work. The, the expenses, oh the ex, so the expenses of the booth fee and staying in the area and just general everything else. You know, one one thing I learned when I did the um, Academy Art Museum in Easton, Maryland, couple (laughs) in 18, I did that one in 18 too. This other couple told us, so we always try to stay in Airbnbs or we'll stay like uh, some place um, like a Fairfield Inn that has like a kitchenette in it. Mm -hmm. And we take dinners, you know, we, Dennis cooks meals for us, we freeze them and then we take them and we'll eat out once maybe twice but the rest of the time we come back to wherever we're staying we have fabulous food because dennis is an amazing cook and we can come when we're tired anyway from the show i can get out of my shoes and put on my sweatpants and enjoy this wonderful meal and it saves you a ton of money so you might want to consider that that's one of the best tips i got yeah uh, these glass makers um at the art academy show (laughs) Yeah, we do. Well, neither one of you guys cook. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually do bring food. We have a like special Yeti that we bring with us every time. And then we typically, I mean, because we're still young and gross and we can do this and not pay for it, is eat like pizza and wings or something for dinner. You know, there's usually some place you can just grab something simple like that where we're going to shows. But, man, that, that Boston show, the one at the Cyclorama, the Cyclorama is so cool. Um and I we got lucky the year we went because it was the same weekend as the Boston Marathon. So they mm. had like tons of extra people in the area. So we did better than I think we would do normally. But yeah, that show for us it was just kind of a bummer. Just the pricing of it and you know what we made. But if you're looking to come north, a show that you should look at is the um the Mag me- show. The Museum Art Gallery show in rochester Rochester. yeah in rochester new york because they uh they keep the price for the booths low and i can't remember what it is but it's like insignificant because i can't remember um maybe 500 bucks or something like that yeah 
Then they... So they keep the booth price low. They put up the artists in the homes of the members of the museum. We did that at, in Easton, Maryland. Yeah. Uh, and we got really lucky. We had a, a guest house by the pool. <laughs> yeah. So we were sitting in their home. It was like we still got our own little private place. Yeah. So MAG, what did you say MAG is short for? I believe it's the Museum Art Gallery. Yeah, in okay. Rochester, New York. But it's... They feed, they feed you, they have, and it's a small show, but the people who come to that show just like really come for the high quality artisans. They really come and they do really great advertising for it. And they just, they really take care of their artists. That show in Baltimore are the two shows we, we've sold the $500 blankets at. Okay. And we've sold them pretty much by somebody coming in and loving it and taking it. Well, my capelets, um, I went from $795 to $895. And when I did the ACE show in um, Chicago, I had a woman come in and just, you know, buy it like that. When I did Smithsonian, I had a woman come in on Thursday who had a gala on Friday or Saturday. And she just, you know, put it on, loved it and took it. So that feels... those are the you know people that I need. I need the people that don't really have to think about yeah. you know, spending that kind of money on something. Absolutely. I can't thank you enough. This has really, really been enjoyable for me. Yeah, this has been so, so much fun. Thank you so much. I really loved hearing how she integrates her daily prayers and meditations into her work. Yeah, it was also cool hearing about different design solutions.